So today on the podcast, we are honored to have Matt Hunt in from Sterling Rope. And we are going to be chatting about rope, about Sterling Rope, and just about uh, kind of general things around rope that you as a rescuer are going to need to know. So how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you as well. So for our viewers and listeners that don't know you or haven't been introduced to you in the past, why don't you give us a a brief or slightly more than brief overview of uh, who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, uh, I guess, first of all, just thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You know, it's good to catch up with you. Usually we cross paths at Eiders or some <laughs> other show and we'd uh, have a drink around the bar, but uh, not this year, unfortunately. It does not seem to be happening. The drink might kill COVID, but the whole bar seems out. But as long as we're chatting, I did bring a beer with me. So we'll uh, have that. Might be a little early on your side of the world, but um to, you know, figure we might as well have a toast to all of our friends that we haven't seen for a little while and hopes a better yes, time Yes, I remember to that. I'll have to go grab one before this is over. Sounds good. Um, yeah, so I've been at Sterling for, uh, gosh, like 14 years now, maybe. Um, and I started off there. Uh, I applied. It's. I think it's probably a similar story for a lot of folks. Um, I thought they were a climbing company, and I was a pretty avid rock climber at the time, and I thought it'd be cool to work there. So uh, they didn't have any jobs on the climbing side, but they said, we've got some some work to do on the rescue side if you want to do that. And I said, sure, it sounds close enough to me. And um, off I went and I've kind of been there ever since. Right on. Now, climbing background. Um, favorite climb you've done? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, so uh, many years ago, we were driving through Wyoming and we stopped in a Devil's Tower. Okay, yeah. There's a, a the the trade route up there is the Durance route, which is a, a really neat little five six. And we thought, you know what, we're we just rolled in and um, we'll we'll run up that, get to the top of the tower, and um, you know we'll be down and we'll be on our way. We're headed cross country at that point, and we got to the top of the second pitch, I think, and sort of looked up, and there was just this massive amount of parties ahead of us. There was had to be eight or nine parties. Some were like parties of four, and it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. We're like, we're never gonna get up there, you know? Um, so we bailed off and we were walking around the bottom of the tower and we ran into this guy and sort of started chatting with him. And he's like, Oh, he's like, actually, I, I climb here a fair bit. Um, I'll show you where to go. And he led us around the corner and, you know, it's devil's tower is these perfect hand cracks and, um, got on this climb called solar and just had just one of those really beautiful days. And, um, it was just so fortuitous. And turns out, uh, the guy's like semi-famous, his name's Frank Sanders and he's just a institution down there. Um, so yeah, we still get postcards from Frank and stuff like that. It's, it was just a nice little uh, crossing of paths. That's awesome. Well, that's, there you go. Right. Just run into people in all sorts of places. Absolutely. So I guess, um, to start the uh, conversation, a lot of rescuers I find don't understand what rope means to them in the rescue world. When you start talking things like a helix angle or an elongation, or a carrier, I think a lot of them just look at it and go, I have no idea. So I'll just go with whatever's kind of recommended to me. And they don't know how that changes the parameters of what they're doing. So what can we just kind of start with that and start basically on like rope construction and what that looks like for a rescuer? Yeah, sure. So I think if you like, if you back it out a little bit, you know, most of what they've, we've dealt with historically was often like adopted from other industries. So, you know, the very earliest rescue ropes were probably repurposed 
uh, marine ropes or something like that. And as time went by, they, you know, realized that what they wanted was slightly different than what the guys on ships might want. And they were able to, you know, refine the characteristics a little bit and kind of get to the place we are now. And it's, it's a really interesting time for, I think all rescue equipment, you know, I, I was looking through an old uh, catalog that somebody sent me the other day and it was six pages. That was, that was the entire assortment of rescue gear that you could buy at the time. They had everything in there and it was six typewritten pages, you know, and now my gosh, you, you know, you fill up half the internet with the rescue gear that you can buy. Um, so it's pretty amazing. Uh, rope is the same, you know, it's, it's gone from being something that's, um, you know, very basic and, probably, you know, not too much thought went into it originally to something that's really pretty highly designed and purpose-built. So depending on what the job is, there's probably something that's pretty specific to that. Um, so, you know, you're, I, I think one of the, uh, one of the really good examples about that would be um, just the elongation characteristics. So the, the classic one is the Europeans use the 1891 standard and um, they'll have equipment that's designed to go with an 1891 rope. And one of the key features of that is how much that rope stretches. So they may be building gear that's intended to go with a rope that's going to stretch X amount. Um, and then in the U.S., um, you know, the 1891 may not come into play so much. So we may deal with things like a 100% polyester rope that's super low stretch. So it's great for really long drops or things like that. But it may not interface as well with those uh, devices that are requiring that certain amount of give in it. So um, it's a little bit more of, you know, building it for exactly what we're going to do with it and what we think it's going to be put through. Right on. And then for people that haven't worked with an 1891 rope, one of the years at Grimp, we went over in Petzl, uh, lent us six ropes, all semi-statics. And when you're used to doing an edge transition and all of a sudden you're a foot down all, you know, as you're going, like, it definitely takes some getting used to. For sure. And I think also, you know, it cuts both ways. I've um, I've had that experience where you sort of get used to the fact that you can cheat it a little bit and you can say like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm only an inch away. I know if I really lean into it, then I'll, I'll get that inch and I can, you know, reach whatever I'm after or whatever it is. And you get into some of the the really low stretch ropes and you're, you are where you are. Um, <laughs> you're not going anywhere else. So what uh, fabrics or what you know, uh, characteristics for a low stretch rope? Like what makes it low stretch compared to high stretch for your average rescuer? What do you, what are we talking like material wise? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, material is probably the biggest factor. So the, the one everybody's familiar with, it's been around forever is nylon. Um, yeah. and we can do a lot with nylon. We can make it really stretchier. We can make it not stretch very much at all. And some of that has to do with, uh, how much we twist it. So you can think of it like a spring or a piece of steel as you, twist it and wind it up, you're going to get that elongation that'll come with it as it elongates mechanically. And also the fiber itself will just stretch. Um, and then more recently, they've moved into things like polyester. So polyester just is a chemically, it's a different material and it just doesn't stretch the way that nylon does. So um, we can get a lower elongation rope out of it. And, um, and that's kind of nice. And then even more recently than that, there's uh, some other fibers like Dyneema. We're seeing more and more in rescue ropes. Dyneema is really cool. It's lightweight. It's really low stretch, um, but it's also expensive and it also has a really low melting point. And it's very slippery. So, you know, all of our systems are based on a certain amount of friction. So uh, a Dyneema rope can be a really difficult thing to manage if you're trying to control a load or something like that. Um, and then I think the other one that probably is out there a lot is the Aramid family. Um, so 
you know, the probably the best recognized trade name is Kevlar would be an Aramid. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of other ones like Technora and Toron and um, Ke- uh, Vectran. And there's probably a handful of others that I'm sort of forgetting about. But those are your uh, those are also really low stretch. And they're also have the additional benefit of being heat resistant, which is kind of fun. Yeah. And so like you're saying, now we start getting pairing devices to ropes where if the rope doesn't have a lot of slippage, you know, for um, force limiting, you might pick up more forces on the rope because you're not getting as much elongation out of it, vice versa, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think everybody probably is familiar with the idea of a rescue system, but you, you certainly have to think of it as a system is if something hits it, what's going to happen is the, is there stretch and is there impact absorption in the rope or is it going to come out of a slippage in the device? Um, if I've got a backup knot behind that device and it's unable to slip, what does that do to the system? Um, so knowing the characteristics of the equipment, I think is pretty critical. Right on. And so for the people that are listening out there, different carriers, like what does that mean to a rescuer? Like, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, most rescue rope is a Kern mantle, right? So we've got a core and then we've got a sheath that we're braiding over it. Um, and as part of that braiding process, uh, we're going to have a a big spool or a bobbin and that bobbin's uh, got all the sheath yarn wound around it. And we stack all those in the machine, and those are what get braided around to make that sheath. So those bobbins are actually the, the piece of the machine they ride on are referred to carriers. So when we talk about carrier count, it's, it's really the number of um, individual strands or yarns that are in the sheath that make up the cover of the rope there. Um, so you'll typically hear them sort of described in terms of either a lower carrier count or a higher carrier count. And the, the best analogy that I've heard of it is if you think about it like paving a road. Um, so if we pave it with cobblestones, like a lower, which would be a lower carrier count, you're, you're covering the same surface area, but you're doing it with a, a bigger piece of material. So you're gonna get a little bit bumpier ride, um, but it also takes a lot to wear through a cobblestone. Um, your other alternative is we could pave it with bricks or tiles and you know they're gonna be smaller pieces. And so we might get a smoother ride as we go, um, but you're, you're a little bit more able to damage some of those individual fibers than you would be if it was a you know, big meaty cobblestone. Okay. So a rope like an HTP, like that was kind of a, a new style of rope that came out on the market at the time. And I mean, it still really is in reality. What's HTP stand for and what kind of properties like we, we, that we just talked to are inside of that rope? Yeah, sure. So uh, HTP, we got really creative on the naming with that one. Um, and it just stands for high tenacity polyester, which is the type of fiber that it's made out of. Um, and so that one's on a pretty high carrier count braider. It's in the, I think that one's a 44. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head. So, uh, the highest we go is 48. That's sort of the, the most carriers you could get to, to make a Kern mantle. Um, so that's got a couple things going on. It's got that low stretch polyester fiber. That's just inherently low elongation. Uh, and then because of the twist levels that we put in it, it's also going to have very little sort of mechanical stretch in there. Um, and so you, you, you factor those two things together and you're going to get uh, a very static, static rope. The, um, you'd ask, you'd mentioned, uh, braid angles or, uh, helix angles. Yeah. Um, so we can adjust if you, you know, if you look at the sheath of a rope and you see those fibers crossing over each other, they're crossing at some sort of angle and you can make a, a shallow angle where they're, you know, kind of getting close to uh, perpendicular across the rope, or you can make a really steep angle where those sheath, uh, yarns are almost parallel to the direction the rope goes. Um, the interesting thing is the closer you get it to 
parallel to a, a steep braid angle, you actually get more strength is actually being contributed to the rope from the sheath because those fibers are lined up in the direction that we're actually going to pull on it. So you can actually make the rope stronger by giving it a really steep braid angle. Um, the downside to it is you tend to get uh, the, the core will pop out through the sheath because it ends up being a fairly loose braid. And so you can go the other way. You can make a pretty shallow braid angle. You get really good coverage, nice and tight. Um, but those yarns may not be contributing much to the strength of the rope itself. So the, the design and the creation of a rope is, uh, it's sort of like uh, one part uh, science and one part black magic in terms of getting all these different factors to line up to get a rope that does all the things that we want, right? Because we want it to be strong. We want it to have nice handling characteristics. We want it to be durable. Uh, we want it to be a pretty color. So to factor all those things in, um, it, it gives me a huge amount of respect for the engineers that are out there creating these things. Right on. And I guess that kind of brings up another few questions of this. People always ask, like, how are we getting stronger ropes? When you look at things, um, uh, and uh, yeah, some, I don't mean to talk about your competition much as well, but there's like a five mil out there from Tufelberger, the power cord. There's, uh, what is it? Blue Water has some Canyon Series 8s. You have some 8s that are pretty decent for that. You've also got your Tech Series 9, 11, 12. And those are fairly strong ropes. So what's changing in the industry to get us smaller and stronger? Sure. The, um, I think it's not unlike any other manufacturing process where the more we do it, the more we learn about it and the better we get at it. So I think a really good example of that is the, the new crop of 11 millimeter general use ro rated ropes that are out there. So those don't have any uh, you know, special fibers in them. We're not using a Dyneema or something like that to get there. Um, it's just uh, sort of like incrementally improved engineering where we're able to really maximize the, the total strength potential of each of those fibers to get a rope that uh, in a smaller package is giving us the same breaking strength that we're getting out of a larger rope historically. So that's, I think that part of it is huge. People are just getting smarter and better at it. You know, there's, there's generations of rope makers that have been around now. Um, if, you know, you think back to sort of like the early days of, you know, that story of Steve Hudson buying a braider and setting it up in his garage, like yeah. you know, he didn't have a background in, in how to do this. And he learned as he went and the knowledge he gained was passed on to the next guy. And, you know, we've all kind of grown as an industry through that. And then the other piece of it, obviously, is just better fiber. Um, we're getting, uh, you know, the, the chemists out there are coming up with these new and interesting fibers for us to use and play with. And, um, you know, Kevlar was never meant to go into a rope. It was originally designed for a lot of other things. But by the time I got to our industry, we found lots of cool uses for it. Right on. Um, yeah, I was at a rope manufacturer over in France, and they were making... They're using one of the um, Kevlar, you know, uh, high tenacity type fiber there, and they're using it for uh, ship's anchors. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was unbelievable to me. Like you're using, I mean, we're talking like massive ships, like where you'd usually have chain. They're now using rope, which kind of blew my mind. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, you know, it's not the industry that we play in, but when you look at some of the things they do in the marine world, whether it be for like offshore drilling or towing and things like that, it's just amazing. The um, the size of the the ropes that they're manufacturing for one thing, you know, they're as big around as you or I. And, exactly. Uh, the, you know, the strengths that they're getting out of those things where I think they're, they're getting to the point where they've manufactured ropes that uh, they can't break test 
which is how we normally determine the strength of a rope. Uh, they just have to calculate it based on sort of like data that they have and they can kind of put it into a model and get like a, a pretty good idea. But they, they don't have a machine big enough to measure it. Um, yeah, it's funny even there. I think their load cell was 100KN. Yeah. That we were at. I mean, that's well over what we're breaking, but. Exactly. One of the questions we get a lot that I thought I'd throw at you is from the climbers. And we go, you know, as a climber, I have a, you know, bicolored rope. The center's marked, you know, the, the weave changes or the color changes. Yeah. Has there not been a call for that in the rescue world much? Or is it something that's just because of price it hasn't been done or? Yeah. Um, it's funny. We do sell one with a bicolor option on it. Um, and uh, I think I'm still sitting on a pile of it that we made uh, in the first couple of production runs. You know, it hasn't been a hot mover for us. Um, and I think part of the reason is probably just the fact that in the rescue world, there's a lot more variation in length. Uh, a 50 meter, you know, these days a 60 meter is very much the standard in the climbing world. Um, so it's pretty easy to kind of account for that. Um, you know, for the rescue world, we're dealing with everything from little short 40 footers that guys are using up on a monopole for getting around the different antenna mounts all the way to, you know, 1200 footers for long cave drops or whatever it may be. So there's just a huge amount of variation in there. I still think it's a great idea. Um, the, the guy who's really been doing a nice job kind of pushing that along is Tim Anderson at Anderson Rescue has really adopted that and kind of run with it. And he's really been able to demonstrate, show some of the benefits of um, basically the fact that every rope has two ends. I mean, how many, how many times have we just, you know, you reach into the bag, you pull one end out and that's the rope. And there's 200 feet of rope sitting in a bag at the other end that never gets to see the light of day. It's, it's so lonely down there. Um, <laughs> you know, one end's all dirty and tattered and the other end looks brand new. Um, yeah, that's so true, isn't it? And I think, you know, educating people and, you know, maybe changing that mindset a little bit of, you know, you, you may very well have two ropes in play. They just happen to be joined in the middle um, is, is certainly an option for different scenarios. Yeah, I mean, we see it in Europe a ton. Like they use both ends of the rope a lot. Like if you can't get both ends of the rope in a bag, yeah. you're recoiling it. Where here, like you say, it's either stuck through the grommet in the bottom, stepped on constantly and gets cut a foot <laughs> like every month because, you know, the, the sheath starts separating or you just never see it. <laughs> I, I would like to find out uh, who originally came up with the idea of stuffing the rope through the grommet. You mean and, the drain uh, hole? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like that's that's not what that's for, but somehow that got, that got baked in, um, you know, per some of your other conversations about the, the long institutional memory that we have. Um, yeah especially in the fire service, but in, in a lot of rescue scenarios. Um, and somebody came up with that idea. And there, there we have all these wicks sitting, sticking out the bottom of these bags to soak up yeah. whatever may be out there. Yeah. Sitting in some old rescue truck, soaking up diesel fuel and everything else. Right. Exactly. Right. So one of the other questions is, is the standard around continuous fibers, you know, static current mantle, not that it's all static current mantle construction now, but is that, you know, institutional memory, as we just mentioned, is that helping or hurting us now in ropes? Like are, are the engineers and the people that are making the products, making them to such a degree that we could start looking at different types of things, maybe a parallax, maybe, you know, these things where you've got these um, unicorn thermal dynamic uh, adhesions in ropes. Like what are thoughts around that? Yeah, sure. I think um, it's a, it's a double-edged sword that, you know, we're, we are largely constrained by various standards, whether it be 
an NFPA standard or a recreational, you know, EN um, or UIAA type standard or whatever it may be. Um, so that's that's going to dictate a lot of what we do because the fact of the matter is people generally want to be compliant with some sort of standard. Yes. Uh, of, of some sort. And, and there's a good reason for that. You want, you want a certain amount of, um, you know, warm, fuzzy feeling that what you're dealing with has been tested and evaluated by somebody and shown to be quote unquote good. So, so there is that. Um, but for those folks who have a little bit more license and freedom and are able to um, explore outside of those standards a little bit more, uh, there's a lot of cool potential out there um, in terms of different types of construction or material or whatever it may be. The one that springs to mind was uh, one of the presentations we saw on some of the, the rescue demonstrations over in Europe where they were using a, a single braid Dyneema and they were splicing them on the fly for the terminations because they're, uh, they're not really well suited to knotting. They're, they're too slippery and, and whatnot. And I was like, holy smokes, like, you know, we'd never get away with that in the States or in North America, but like, that's a great idea. It's incredibly strong, incredibly lightweight. Um, if you've got the guys that are trained to do it, then, you know, what a tremendous advantage that presents. So there's, there's certainly some room for some different constructions and styles of rope out there. Um, and I think where we start to see more of that is in something that's been designed as part of a system. So uh, like an example, that would be like an escape system um, for a firefighter or um, maybe like a, a throw bag type system. So you've got a couple pieces that are being put together and uh, you know they're going to work because you've tested that whole apparatus all as, all as one thing. Um, and so like the single braids are a good example of that. You get really good strength efficiency out of the fiber in a single braid, uh, but they tend to pick apart a lot. So if you're not dealing with something where there's a chance of picking and snagging, then could be a great option. So being able to, but you have to, you kind of have to test it as it's meant to be used rather than as more of a general purpose kind of rope. Yeah. And I guess with the escape standard that opens up some other ideas because generally those are designed to be used once and then removed from service. So all of a sudden you have a couple other options you can play with. That's right. Yeah. Um, and you know, I sort of think of the, the default in our world as being either, you know, a fire department who, you know, they pull that bag of rope and equipment out of the truck or a mountain rescuer who, you know, stuffs it in a backpack and, and off they go. And both of those guys are, or gals are required to deal with anything that comes their way. And, they, you know, they need a tool that's going to be very much the Swiss Army knife and be able to accommodate lots of different scenarios. Um, when you get into some of those, like, very specific uses, then you can design a very specific tool for it. Right on. I'm just going to grab my notes here because, of course, they shut down a little bit. Yeah. Um, a little more beer. Yeah, you're going to have some beer. There you go. The uh, specific products um, that you guys care, we started the conversation around some rope that a certain fire department used for some roof applications. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that rope? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the one you're referring to is something called a roof rope that yeah. the, the fire department in New York city uses. And it's a, it's a rather peculiar uh, setup that they have and it's sort of unique to them. And like several other things that New York city does, my personal belief is they're able to do it because they have a certain um, size that allows them to do certain things um, in terms of manpower and in terms of training. So those guys are incredibly well-trained on a whole bunch of really interesting things that your, your average rural volunteer department just would never have the bandwidth to accommodate that sort of thing. Um, 
so they do this thing where they, uh, well, first of all, they, they go to the top of a building that's on fire and stand on it, which seems crazy to me. Um, and then they, uh, they, they carry this bag with them and it's got a 125 feet of rope in it. And, uh, in the, the case that they've got somebody sort of hanging out a window down below, then they'll, they'll tire firemen into it and lower them over the top of that roof parapet and basically do essentially a pickoff rescue, uh, except for the fact that there's no, there's no harness, there's no attachment. They just grab them in a big bear hug and then they, they continue lowering them down to the ground. And it's, it's an incredibly uh, high risk maneuver, but it's also an incredibly high reward. There's really sort of no other option. Um, if they can't get a, an aerial ladder in there or, or something like that, it's sort of a, a last ditch option. Um, and they've, they've had a handful of these roof rescues over the years and uh, they, they had one several years ago where uh, the, the, the great problem with this is you're lowering this rescuer and possibly the victim as well. Um, you basically have to lower them through the window that's venting the fire out um, because you can't really offset it too much because there can't be too much swinging around or anything like that. So they had an incident where um, they basically had the rescuer and he picked off this, this person and they got about 12 inches from the ground and the rope melted through. It was a, a nylon three-strand rope they were using at the time. And the, the guy said he essentially stepped down to the ground is basically what happened. And uh, everybody sort of, you know, wiped the uh, sweat from their brow and said, you know, maybe there's a better way to do this. And we'd been working with them on uh, heat resistant ropes for their personal escape systems that those guys carry. And they said, do you think you can kind of scale up for a, a bigger version? And uh, so, you know, we, we did some prototyping work with them and they ended up um, going in a slightly different tack where, Historically, they'd just taken that roof rope and wrapped it around the uh, that large carabiner, the pompier hook that they all wear as part of their regular um, harness that every fireman wears there. And that was their friction device. And it was great because they always had it with them. They can't forget it. Um, and, you know, everybody sort of knew how to do it. But uh, there, was, there was no auto break to it. Um, if you did it wrong, it had a potential to foul the rope up pretty poorly. So they actually went to an entire system, which... Um, includes a, a lowering device, a Petzl ID, and then this half inch solid Technora uh, rope that we make for them, which got, has a uh, shock pack sewn into one end. So as the guy's transferring over the parapet, if he happens to shock load it, there's a little bit of give in the system. Technora is a, a really static fiber. So the potential for a, a bit of a nasty shock was there. So they accommodated that. Um, and then they can, they can lower out with a little bit more control using the friction device. Um, so they actually had their first deployment of it the other day. Uh, I say the other day back in September, I think. And that one was a little extra hairy because normally they would take again, the other end of the rope, uh, and create an anchor with that. They go around a, a chimney or, a, um, you know, whatever sort of object, substantial object they can find up there. Uh, they couldn't find anything. So they, uh, they ended up just clipping it onto one of the firemen and the other guy just jumped over the parapet and, uh, it, was, it was a body weight counter repel, basically. Um, and, you know, the saving grace with something like that is the the turns and the bends over the parapet generate a huge amount of friction. Um, oh, yeah. So that's, that's carrying a lot of the load in that case. And they said they felt pretty confident on it because the um, they could see the little hands sticking out the window and it was, it was a small child. So they knew they weren't adding a ton of weight to it. Um, and it was it was a very successful rescue. Um, and they said they, they felt in control the whole time. And again, they felt confident based on the amount of training they've had and the amount of evolutions they had under their belt. 
that, that neither of them had done it before in real life, but they felt pretty confident going for it, knowing that they'd, they'd practiced it a ton and it was something that was in their quiver. You know, so that's a Technora, Technora rope then? Yeah. Yep. It's, uh, the, the thought is it's about as heat resistant as you can get without going to a steel cable. Okay. So, uh, any fiber, like whether it be nylon, Technora, whatever you have, um, they'll, they'll all burn at some point. Um, there's nothing that's fireproof. Some of them are more heat resistant than others. Um, so with Technora, all you're doing is buying more time. Nothing's uh, fireproof. We're just doing better than we were with a nylon rope. Right on. No, that's really interesting. And is that like a static current mantle construction still, or is that something yeah. different? That one's actually a double braid. So uh, okay. most rescue ropes are going to have the cores run parallel. This one, the cores are actually braided. Um, and then we braid a sheath over that. And um, the doing that double braid just gives it some handling characteristics that we're after. It kind of helps keep it a little rounder and a um, little better hand as far as knotting and things like that. Doesn't come out as webbing then. <laughs> Not quite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so on that process, I mean, you just talked about this product for the FDNY. What does it take to make a new product? Like when we decide, Hey, you know, I want to make a new rope today. I want to some bi-colored water resistant 200 meter Uber super rope. What are we looking at? Like time frame, and what does that process look like? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, my dad used to always say, "With enough time and money, we can do anything." Uh, <laughs> and it's it certainly rings true as far as product development goes. Um, lots of great ideas out there, but we sort of have to figure out what we're going to get a return on investment with. Um, and so, some of the really esoteric ones where people say, "You know, I've got this great idea. All you have to do is just..." change the way you guys do everything every day. And, you know, I'm going to buy up to a hundred meters of it is we sort of say, Oh boy, you know, uh, we, we could do that. Uh, or we could continue. It's a, it's a manufacturing factory, right? We're really good at doing the same thing all the time. Um, trying to make modifications and changes to that is a little bit of turning that oil tanker around. Um, so, you know, if we're, if we're going to make something new or change how we do something there, we have to know that there's going to be essentially sales behind it to, to justify those, those costs and those expenses. Um, so that being said, the, I think it's also the most interesting part of what we do. It's probably the, the part I have the most fun with every day um, is trying to figure out what, what can we do that's new and is going to improve how people go to work every day, whether it be, you know, firemen or rope access technicians or arborists or whatever it is, you know, given the capabilities that we have, what can we do that's going to make their life better? Um, and, uh, I, I can't say that I'm any good at it, but uh, we've, we interact with a lot of smart people like you guys who can bring these ideas to us and say, hey, you know, I was out there in the field the other day doing this thing. And it sure would have been great if that rope had, um, you know, this feature to it. And we say, oh, well, that's really interesting. I never thought of that, but let's see what we can do. Um, and then we'll we'll kind of run it through the ringer and say, like, do you think anybody else would like that? Or is Mark just totally crazy? Um, <laughs> Mark's usually totally crazy. <laughs> And if we decide Mark's not totally crazy, then, you know, we'll sort of put it through the process and uh, see if we can get it out into the field. Right on. And what kind of time frame are you talking about for something like this? So that's a good question. I think if we didn't have anything else going on, you can probably get a new rope going and call it six months. Um, From the time we sort of put together the design criteria, what we want it to do, make up a couple of prototypes, we're you know, generally not successful on the first round. So maybe we run through a couple of prototypes and then we put it through a pretty rigorous field testing. So 
we'll ship it out to guys in the field and say, Hey, you know, go beat on this for a while. And, you know, tell us how it goes. And if things go well, then they say, yeah, it's great. We love it. Um, but that's not always how it goes. We get feedback and we make adjustments as needed and we may have to, you know, kind of go back to step two and make some more prototypes. And, um, and then in parallel with that, we'll do testing in-house. So the most basic one is just breaking it, see how strong it is. Um, but we've got some other, um, sort of like, I'll say like off standard testing we can do. So we have uh, a machine that will subject it to abrasion and, uh, there's a test for sheath slippage and we've, uh, got a, uh, unit that we can heat up the ropes with and subject them to really high temperatures and see what happens and do all those sort of other things where, you know, if you pull out the NFPA standard, it may not say, you know, subject it to this abrasion test, but we're going to do it anyway. And uh, it just helps us have more confidence that it's going to behave itself out in the field. Right on. Is there other user groups or industries that you pull a lot of ideas from as a rope manufacturer? Like we talked Marine a little bit and they obviously use rope. Um, and they use quite a lot of small diameter, high strength type things. But is there other industries out there that you steal from or borrow ideas or look at back and forth a little more? Yeah, I mean, I think the one that we've been uh, probably playing with the most recently is the arbor industry. Um, okay. And those guys are uh, similar in a lot of ways to, you know, our, I'll say my regular like rescue and uh, rope access kind of folks. Uh, they, they do a lot of math in their head on the fly in terms of, you know, what kind of load do I expect and what's the gear rated for? And is it going to be able to handle it? Um, the, the difference with those guys is they're calculating dynamic loads. So mm -hmm. they, they intend to shock load these systems. And they also do that thing that, you know, you and I would probably never do, which is, uh, quote unquote, let the load run. So as opposed to locking it off and transferring that load, when they drop that wood, they're going to let it slide through the system to help dissipate some of that force. Cool. And that's a very, uh, I'll say artistic, uh, thing, you know, uh, how do you gauge that? And it's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, sort of on the job training and there's also a lot of broken ropes in the Arbor industry, which is something we don't see in the rescue or the rope access world. Um, the guys, they full on use them up and wear them out and they, uh, they're, they're not afraid to, consume them and come back for more there you uh, go so and they're also interesting too because they're they're doing two things at once they're rigging loads and they're climbing life support um so they're they're sort of having to work on both sides of their brain there on that side of it too and they've got some amazing techniques the the some of the ascending systems that they've come up with are spectacular you know you want to you want to get up a rope fast like holy smokes like go to a tree climbing competition and watch some of those guys and gals. It's, it's wild. Um, and they're an innovative bunch. They, they are, I'll say less constrained by some of the standards than other industries are. And it gives them a freedom to innovate some of their own equipment. Uh, the Arbor industry is one of those places where people still, um, you know, they'll put it on the internet or bring it over to show you this thing they made out in their back shed that they're taking to work the next day and climbing on. And it's like, holy smokes, like, have you tested that? And they're like, oh, heck yeah, I tested it. I climbed on it all day yesterday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but there are a lot of great ideas come out of that. You know, things like the um, the Akimbo from Rock Exotica and um, the rope wrench was definitely a game changer. Sort of that idea of being able to add friction in one direction and take it away in another um, was, that was amazing. And, you know, the guy cooked it up in his backyard. It's it pretty cool. So 
I, I, I've been enjoying seeing what the arborists are coming up with these days. It's pretty neat. And do you see at some point some of those combining with rope access, rope rescue techniques or equipment? Yeah, it's funny. We've, we've already seen some of that. So uh, we probably started dealing with arb stuff, gosh, five, six, seven, eight years ago. And the one that absolutely blew me away was the idea of using a friction hitch as your descent control device. And that's something that every arborist does. It's, it's totally standard for them is to basically use a prusik to rappel down a rope, which just blew my mind. Um, and yeah, they're really good at it. They know what they're doing and it works. And, um, I think maybe last iters I was at, um, I saw a handful of folks who had adopted some of those techniques, um, in some of their rescue systems and were, were using them with great success. Um, slightly different application, you know, they're not, they're not doing long descents or anything like that, but they'd, they'd essentially come up with a, a system that allowed them to have a, a very lightweight, inexpensive, uh, friction hitch that would catch a load, uh, when used correctly and also allowed them to release that load under tension. And was, to, to me, it was a very direct line from the arb industry into that one. And I think we'll probably see more of that. Right on. I mean, that kind of goes really well into my next question. There's been a lot of advancements in prussic cordage in the last little while. I mean, from the hollow block that you folks make to some of the more end-to-end prussics. So we're getting, you know, VTs, true VTs, max over ones, max over twos, whatever, as opposed to the typical old tandem prussic. Um, how's that changed for you folks and Sterling? Like, has that been a, a good change, a bad change? Like, what's that look like when you're getting all these different prussic cords in there now? Yeah, it's, uh, it's made life a little bit harder in that it was used to be easy enough to say, go grab a piece of eight millimeter and you've got yourself a prusik, tie yeah. it on and off you go. Um, and so it's made it, uh, I think it's made it harder on the end user to decide exactly what the right thing is for what they're doing. Um, but I think the flip side of that is they have a lot more options to really marry up um, a host rope and a prusik rope that are going to interact really well together. So I, it's it's made it a little more complicated, but I think it's, it's a net benefit if folks can figure out what the combination is between the two. And that's a, unfortunately, that's a really hard one. Um, folks, we, we, we wish that we had a better way to predict um, how two ropes are gonna interact together and, and we don't. Um, we had an intern from uh, uh, MIT a couple of years ago and she sat down for her, her end of semester presentation on sort of like, you know, what did I learn during my time at Sterling? Um, somebody asked her that question. They said, what was, what was the biggest learning that you had here? And she said, I kept thinking that if I looked deep enough into some textbook or to some corner of the internet, I could find the formula that would mathematically explain and predict how a rope works and, and, and how to build one that would do what I want it to do. And she said, and it's just not there. I, I, it doesn't exist. There's too many variables and um, you know, it, there is no mathematical formula. There, there's trial and error. Um, and we, we can predict a lot of stuff, but um, at the end of the day, it does come down to a bit of um, getting out there and getting your hands dirty and seeing how it goes. So, yeah, the, the more products we have, the the harder it is for folks to ter- determine exactly which one's right. Yeah, and that's funny because, I mean, there is a lot of science behind the equipment, the manufacturing of it, even the systems, the way they're rigged. But there's still a lot of art out there, too, for just that gut instinct of, ah, this is going to hold, it's going to be close, but it's going to work. Right. And it's, you don't know where those come from, but 
most times you're good. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yep. Um, just on the subject of prosthetics, I'm kind of glad you brought it up. It, um, and we also talked about institutional memory. It still blows my mind how many comments I see online and places like that. People talking about the, the fact that a prusik is going to slip at a certain load and you can count on that to, to be that piece that's going to tell you your system is safe. And uh, just based on uh, not even testing we've done, but you know the, the International Prusik Symposium that we used to go to every year, um, it's like, holy smokes. I think the one thing we've proven is that they are not uh, predictable and reliable. They certainly exhibit those behaviors sometimes, um, but if you're under 100%, then I don't know if you can really be trusting it. And those, you know, prussic slipping and clutching interactions are way below 100% in terms of repeatability. Oh, well, it's really interesting. Tom took all that information, right? Um, and just the difference between grip, regrip, and break. Like sometimes those numbers overlapped. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, hang on a second here. Yeah. Yeah, so that's one where it's like, oh boy, you know, we've had these these notions for a long time, and it's going to take a long time yet to um, let that kind of flush through the system. Yeah, probably a very long time. Um, kind of wrapping back around with standards, I'll pick on not pick on per se, but the escape standard is kind of the one of the newer ones out there. It was you know brought up from scratch kind of at the time. How does a rope manufacturer like yourself? get into helping and working with that standard in order to get something usable for you up the other side? Yeah, it's a, it's a very well-defined process in terms of, um, you know, if you really boil it down, a bunch of people get in a room and yell at each other about what they think the standard should say. And it's, it's democracy in action. And, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of voting and certain people carry a little more sway than others. And um, at the end of the day, you get something that probably nobody loves, but everybody can, can live with. Um, but basically the way, uh, you know, like you said, we'll take the NFPA, for example, um, you, you get all the stakeholders together. So that's the, the end users. You get some firemen in there. Um, you get the manufacturers. You get representatives from a couple different companies. Um, you get some folks from the testing labs who are going to have to certify and, and test it because we may come up with a great idea and they'll say, we've, we've got no, no idea, no way to evaluate that idea. You know? um, and then we, we kind of all noodle it around for a while. And the nice thing about it, I think, is that, you know, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It, it gets posted. You can, you can go look at it and any, any citizen can log in and they can post their comments on there. So we might say, hey, we're, we're thinking about making a rule or you know, escape ropes have to be purple. And that's that's the only way they're going to be. And it's, it's because it's safer. And people can get on there and they can say, I think that's a terrible idea. You know, I, I, I hate purple and we're not going to do that. And the, the committee has to address all those concerns. So it I think it is a very nice, um, if messy at times, process um, as far as how the standards go. And um, I also like the fact that they get updated. Um, it's a it's a living document. So uh, with the NFPA, it's generally every five years. And sometimes five years feels like an eternity. Uh, if you have something new that you're trying to get in there or uh, an, an issue that's come to light that really needs to be addressed, um, can feel like a really long time. And other times it feels really short. You think, oh my gosh, we just sat in that hotel ballroom and you know went over all this, like we're back already. And um, But I think, I think five years is probably about right. Um, and it, it gives everybody a chance to have a little bit of a voice in the process. Yeah, five years unless you're on the thousand six committee, and then 
Well, we'll keep that one just there for now. Um, what are some questions that folks ask you that you were really surprised of in the regards to rope? Oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, it seems like we get something interesting every day. Um, it's the, uh, I think it's, it's the off-label uses. So uh, there's been this huge increase these days in uh, something called saddle hunting, which is the idea of deer hunting while hanging in a harness from a tree. And oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something, honestly, I hadn't heard about until six months ago. And apparently there's a corner of the internet that is all about this. And we've, uh, golly, we must have sold 10,000 of these widgets for saddle hunting. That's something that, you know, in my mind didn't exist last year. And so people call and they say, oh, I've, I've bought this thing. Is it going to be suitable for saddle hunting? And we say, uh, I have no idea what that is. Like, can, can you tell me about it? Um, so we get some of those, or, uh, I, I think one of my favorite ones was probably somebody called and they said, uh, what's the, the largest diameter rope you sell? And I said, we've got a, a three quarter inch. And they said, oh, would that be good for tug of war? I said, oh yeah, sure. I think so. Yeah. It'd probably work pretty well. It's, you know, biggest one we got, you can hang on to it. And they said, great. Uh, do you know if it meets the standard? And I said, uh, the tug of war standard. And they said, yeah, yeah. We have to have a stand, a, a certified rope for for our upcoming tug of war thing i said do, do you know what the tug of war standard is they said no i was hoping you did and it was sort of this odd circular argument where they were asking for something to be certified to a standard that as far as i could tell didn't exist um so we, we get those sorts of things as well right on uh, a couple other questions and you don't have to answer these ones obviously if you don't want approximately how many feet of rope does sterling sell in a year so i'm i'm actually fairly terrible at numbers uh, and, you know, sort of remembering facts and figures uh, specifically, but I do well with association. So uh, the last I heard was uh, we last year, we made enough rope to go to the moon and back about three times. Wow. I'll have and to that, Google how far the moon is away, but we'll worry about that later. Right. And, and that's, you know, everything from our little two millimeter accessory cords all the way through rescue ropes and climbing ropes and sort of meters of stuff out the door. Right on. What's the most popular product on like the work rescue side? Well, that's a good one. Um, you know, I think HTP is definitely still that like bread and butter and, you know, still in that half inch diameter is it's a big mover. Um, you know, the fire service and, uh, on the industrial side as well. Um, that's definitely pretty popular. And then the, uh, the other sort of like place where it seems to keep us really busy is on the personal escape systems for firefighters. Um, those ones are, they're interesting cause they're a little bit, um, there's still sort of like a new thing that's kind of going on, um, for a lot of folks. And so th those ones are fun too, because we get to do a lot of demonstrations and trainings with those. And, um, the, we sort of laughingly refer to it as throwing firemen out the window for the day. And it's a, it's an interesting little, uh, sort of high adrenaline piece of equipment that we deal with. And on that note, uh, I'm going to dangle it here. I'm not going to say it. I want to have a conversation with you offline at some point about firefighter escape systems because I've got some interesting thoughts on that in the future, and I'm not going to bring them up here because it requires a standards change. So, Oh, okay. Well, there you go. forward to that one. Yeah, there you are. You know, another one of those crazy, dumb ideas, right? Well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll hit you back with it, and I'll tell you that there's um... – not necessarily on the escape systems per se, but we've got a bunch of interesting things in the hopper that I think will um, intrigue you in the, the months to come. 
So, well, that's what I was going to ask. What's next for Sterling? Like what's, you know, and obviously you can't say everything. I understand there's some proprietary there, but what's next for Sterling going down the route in the next, you know, 12, 18 months. Yeah. It's um, so, as I think, you know, we were acquired by uh, another company about a year ago, year and a half. Um, and it's been great. They, they had a whole bunch of resources to work with us on. And that includes in the R and D department, there's new people, there's new machinery, there's um, all sorts of good stuff going on there. So there's uh, things in the hopper kind of all the way across the works, whether it be from static ropes to different accessory cords. We've got some really cool dynamic ropes that are coming down the pipe. Um, pretty much wherever we look around out there, there's something new in the works. And it's just a little bit of a race to see like what's going to you know pop across the finish line first. It's funny you mentioned that. That seems to be in vogue right now is having uh, rescue supply companies and manufacturers purchased by somebody else. Um, yeah. Um, I, I can't, pro I can't say that I've got any sort of, um, you know, magic skill with a Ouija board or anything like that. But, um, I was talking to, uh, Rich from SMC, uh, a couple months ago. And he said, Matt, do you remember what you told me at the MRA conference last year? I was like, I have no idea. There's, you know, there was definitely an open bar and I'm not quite sure, uh, what I might Get have said. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you, you observed that uh, this industry was still made up of a lot of independent players and many other industries, whether it be, you know, medical, um, you know, resource extraction, whatever it is, there's this consolidation going on. And I was like, wow, that's pretty good. I, I don't know where I came up with that. But um, yeah, like you said, it seems to be in vogue. Um, there's definitely been a little bit of um, consolidation going on. But like you say, I mean, there's some benefit to it. There's obviously the ability to get some deeper pockets and break some stuff and make some other products. That's it. Yeah. And you know, the, um, the company that we're working with now, um, has tremendous deep roots in the arborist industry and the expertise that they can share with us on that side of the house has been tremendous. Um, so there's been some really nice synergies. Right on. Uh, is there anything else you want to add? We're kicking just about 45, 50 minutes on this. So I don't need to stop it here, but is there anything else you want to add? I don't have I uh, I don't have a list or anything. There's nothing nothing in particular that I had on here. I was just looking forward to a chance to chat with you guys, and um, I'm always always game to talk about rope and and that sort of thing. So appreciate the time. No, I appreciate it as well. We've gone through the list that you and I had kind of emailed back and forth, and we've added a few other things to it, obviously, because the list is not that long. But uh, <laughs> no, I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, think there's some good educational components to this for listeners out there and if people want to get a hold of you how do they do that people have either questions follow-ups where do they get a hold of you or sterling at yeah so we we love to answer questions we can't always answer all of them uh, we may not have those answers but we're happy to take a look at them um, and they can probably email is the best way to get a hold of me and it's matt.hunt at sterlingrope.com right on and uh 2021 when's the uh, catalog coming out <laughs> it's in the works um and it's going to be kind of an exciting catalog for us um you know we've got the opportunity to put a lot more stuff in there than we used to so it's going to be a, a more rounded offering which will be great awesome well thank you again for coming on yeah it's been great chatting with you thanks mark all right